Lighthouse Community Church, welcome everybody. It's so good to see all of you in here. I love seeing faces that I remember, especially when you kind of take off the mask and get your temperatures taken and all that fun stuff. You guys look great. Ignore the extra weight I may have or may have not put on. I have no any knowledge. We're so glad you're here today. Today is the day the Lord has made. We're going to be rejoicing and be glad in it. I'm going to ask you today to just sing, leave everything you brought from the week, all the stuff that's been hanging on. Bring it in, set it down, let God take over, let Jesus have it. Amen? Wait, let's try it again. Amen? There you go. Okay, now I know you're there. All right. It's good to see you. We want to see, we want to say, give thanks to the Lord forever, for He is our God and King, and His love endures forever. Here we go. Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. Love endures forever.
This is fun when I can hear you guys. I love this. I love this. Amen. The great thing about our God is that his son, Jesus, is our Messiah. Without him, where would we be? Messiah 
One of the most amazing things about our God is that he always allows U-turns. No matter what you've done, where you've been. And for some reason this week, I've been praying about being in this place with all of you at this time. And he just said, tell everybody he allows U-turns. You can come back from wherever you were. And this is why. It's because of his amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Come on. That saved a wretch like me. Because I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now.
the earth shall soon dissolve like snow and the sun forbid to shine but God who calls me here below will be Jesus, thank you, Heavenly Father. We, we, we lift our praise and our, and our honor to you, oh God. Some of us have gone through a really hard time in the last six months, and Lord, we, we sometimes just reach up and say, why and what's happening and where can we go? But we thank you that it is at the foot of the cross that we can bring all of our troubles. So, God, I ask this day that there's anybody here who's suffering, who's feeling pain and hurting. And, and Father, they may be either sick from just an illness or, or out in the, those who are watching us on stream. If there's people that are hurting and physically, emotionally, mentally, God, we would ask now that your Holy Spirit would fill that room with your presence in such a mighty way that they would feel the healing, the love, and the grace of Jesus Christ. We ask today that you speak through our pastor as his words would be just burning into our hearts. May our hearts be ready to receive them. And then, Father, once we receive them, may we have the, the, just the desire to go out and serve you. And, Father, as always, if there's anybody either watching us on stream or in this building who does not know you, may they not leave this service without letting us know, without finding you, without knowing who you are, God. Help them to come to you. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Amen and good night. Thank you, Brother Bill. It's good to be back in the house of the Lord, isn't it? Some of you I haven't seen in like seriously four months. So that means it's like the first of the initial homecoming reunion. And so, so thankfully, so thankful to see you. Uh, I hope we can figure out how to make it all work. And I think we're so close now to actually seeing the next stages of opening up and everyone kind of getting back to normal that, you know what? Just put fear on the shelf and take a deep breath and say, this is the day that the Lord has made. Come on, church. We will rejoice and be glad in it, right? I mean, what's, why are we worried about tomorrow? We're, how do we get so confused? Tomorrow will take care of itself. See the birds of the air? They don't lay up. You don't need to worry about it. Let's just get involved today with being the kind of church that we need to be so we can encourage someone today. I was down in San Diego with my family this week. You know, trying to just relax from life. And as I walked into my room, there's a bonfire burning right behind my room. And the guy says something about 1 Corinthians 13. Does anyone understand it? He's talking to a whole group of people on the beach. And I was just trying to walk in my room. I, I was done fishing. It was late at night. And you know what? God is good. And he's moving in people. And from that moment on, as my wife continued to look out the window for about two to three hours... An entire random group of people on the beach. We just talked about 1 Corinthians, who God is, and how the church is still moving today. You've got nothing to be worried about. It's all been taken care of. There's going to be some great opportunities. Pastor Eric's going to share with you today if you want to get involved with. If not, just turn to someone right now and say, I'm glad you're here. And let me open in prayer and thank God for this wonderful day. Let's rejoice in it. Father God, I'm just so grateful for the morning. Thank you for the opportunity to see some faces that we have not seen in a while. 
And I pray for those that are out there watching right now and they're thinking, could I and should I and is it okay? And just, just help them this morning to have the confidence and to not be afraid of anything. Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Father, may we have the kind of reverential awe for you that we need and just an understanding of how everything else is all working itself in order. Thank you for the opportunity to serve you this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to hear your word. Bless this time and everything that we do and say, we do it in your son Jesus' precious in holy name. Amen. God bless you guys. All right. How am I supposed to follow that energy? Come on. So Jeff is supposed to be on vacation this week, but obviously he just wants to be with us, which I, I totally understand. Uh, and, and this just feels like a bit of a return to normalcy. You know, just to be able to gather in this box, obviously, we're the church, this building's not the church, but to be able to gather together. And for those of you who are at home, just know I love the fact that um, we are gathering with you and grateful that you're joining us. Uh, talk about return to normalcy. We got to drop our kids off at school on Thursday and Friday of this week. Hallelujah, right? We, I even, Kathy made me slow the car down to a stop before we kicked them out. <laughs> But then afterwards, we're like, we look at one another like, now what? what? Who, who are you again? Right? Like, we had just forgotten how to be together without children in the home. And I'm grateful they're learning. But one of the things I've come to recognize is that over these last six months is that they've been home and trying to figure out distance learning. And then the longest summer ever recorded. Um, the summer of my discontent, if you will. They, they were... I'm joking. I'm kind of a little bit of joking. Um, they've been learning the whole way, right? Because as any parent knows, more is caught than taught. And our kids have been learning this whole time. And, and, and it's for better or it's for worse, right? Well, Kat and I will take the kids on a hike through the back bay, and I'll turn around and I'll see my kids with sticks in their hands slashing green bushes down, and I'm like, like they're cutting the heads off of dragons. And I go, guys, stop cutting the plants down. And Kathy looks at me and goes, seriously? And then I look down on my hand and realize I've got a stick and I've been knocking the tops off of the dead stuff and I just never communicated, just hit the brown, not the green, right? So, 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 for, so for worse sometimes, but also for better. We've been going to the beach almost every single night over the last month or so. And this is one of my favorite pictures that my wife grabbed uh, because one of the things, I, I was a lifeguard for 10 summers down in Newport Beach, and one of the things I learned along the way is when you get to the beach, you don't just go jump out in the water, because you have no idea. It might look small, but you have no idea what the waves are really like, so you need to stay about 10 minutes on the beach and watch it. You learn, you see the break, and for the first 100 times we've been to the beach, my kids wanted to just bolt into the water, and I made them sit down. I made them watch the water. I sat down, and, and now here's the beautiful part. Ethan, when we get to the beach, he will go and he'll sit down and go, Dad, are you going to watch the water with me? So they're getting it slowly, right? But more is caught than taught. And as we're going to notice as we dive into the book of Philippians today, Paul takes a very similar approach. Because although, and if you have a Bible, by the way, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. That's where we're going to be studying out of today. Paul is writing to the, the Christians living in the Roman colony of Philippi, initially on the surface as a thank you letter to them saying thank you for a financial gift that they sent while he's incarcerated. But it goes so much beyond that because Paul really views himself as a spiritual father to this church. 
these people. He cares deeply for them for a lot of different reasons. One, they have been partners with him in ministry by financially supporting him for like the last decade of his ministry. But also, he helped plant the church, and they just have a special place in his heart. So he goes overboard in just wanting to help them understand what it means to live as ambassadors of hope in a community that doesn't really bend a knee to Jesus Christ. They consider Caesar Lord, not Jesus Lord. They're looking to build the kingdom of Rome, not the kingdom of God. And so he's writing to help them to understand what does it look like to be the kind of people who reflect the heart of Christ into a, a culture that is very much in conflict with our perspectives. And he'll do so a couple of different ways. He will straight out exhort them on how to live, right? He'll tell them how to do it. But in the passage we're going to look at today, he's going to model for them. He's going to show them from his own posture the type of posture he would want. And it's important for us to remember uh, the context into which he is writing. Paul may be writing to say thank you. He might be writing with a lot of joy. This is probably his most joy-filled letter that he writes. But he's doing so from prison. He's either in a jail cell or at home under house arrest, probably chained to a Roman guard. And as he's writing this down, or probably more likely dictating it to somebody who's writing it down because we know that Paul didn't have the greatest eyesight, as he is writing this letter to them, he decides to share with them his perspective on what his current circumstances are because they've obviously heard that he's incarcerated. They know that there's a possibility that his trial that's coming up might spell his execution. And that might seem like this massive monumental setback for the gospel. I think for most of us, we would look at it as a setback for the gospel because Paul's not free to just go anywhere he wants and share the gospel. Now he's stuck in a room, and he can't go anywhere. And yet, what they might consider a setback, Paul recognizes is actually an opportunity for the gospel to advance. So let's go ahead and begin reading now in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether by false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? <laughs> I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. 
but it's more necessary for me that I remain in the body. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. You know, one of the things I really appreciate about Paul, one of the things I really find challenging about Paul's example is that his circumstances really don't have much of a bearing on the way that he views the world or upon his attitude. Time and again, we read that Paul endured really, really difficult things, things that I think might break many of us, might shake the foundation of our faith. I mean, the first time that Paul was in Philippi, first he was there completely deviated from where he had anticipated. They believed they were going to Asia. They wound up in Macedonia in this Roman colony called Philippi. And while he's there, there's this gal who has an evil spirit that has just been absolutely tormenting her. And And when Paul frees her from that spiritual oppression, he is beaten up and thrown in jail for it. And in that moment, I probably would be like, God, seriously? I follow you and this is what I get for it? But that's not his attitude. He and Silas, about midnight in the jail cell as their bodies are are still oozing blood from having been beaten up and the, the bruises are starting to form and their feet are in the stalks, they're worshiping God and they're praying. They had their eyes fixed on him and God used that opportunity because it might have been viewed as a setback. It might have been viewed as an absolute just slap across the face of the gospel, but instead it was an opportunity. And because of Paul's presence in the jail cell, he went from being a captive to being able to lead his jailer to Christ. Not just his jailer, but his jailer's whole family, his oikos, his sphere of influence. He gets to lead them all to Jesus because of his proximity there. We remember later on, he's released from jail and he continues on with his ministry. He goes to Jerusalem and he's sharing, he's in the temple, he's worshiping God and he gets arrested by the Jews because they think that he is desecrating the temple, having brought a Gentile into the temple. And Paul, being falsely accused, is thrown before some Roman magistrates, sits in jail for months, finally says, hey, listen, I'm a Roman. I I deserve to be able to make a case for myself. And so he's shipped off to Rome where he's supposedly going to stand trial. And on the way, there's this massive storm that threatens to sink the ship that he's on. And Paul is not overcome by it because, again, he has his eyes fixed on Jesus. And this captive, as Jeff has pointed out, goes in, really takes the posture of the captain of that ship. He begins to speak hope over the the captives on this ship. He begins to speak hope over his Roman captors. They begin to listen to him. They find themselves marooned on this island, the island of Malta. And while there, as Paul is helping load wood into the fire, he's bitten by a snake, right? You remember this? And people are like, oh man, he must have really done something wrong. That, That he would survive this shipwreck and then get bitten by a poisonous serpent. And yet, Paul's not overcome by it. In fact, it becomes an opportunity and he gets to share the gospel, not just with his Roman captors, but with all the inhabitants of the island. And as Jeff has pointed out, the fruit of that 
is even seen today because over 95% of the island of Malta calls Jesus Christ their Lord and their Savior. That is the fruit of his faithfulness in the midst of difficult circumstances. Well, Paul once again finds himself in difficult circumstances. He's imprisoned. He's awaiting a trial that could very well spell his execution. And yet his perspective is not on his circumstances. His perspective is on the opportunity and what is happening to the gospel. Let's read a little bit here in verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Why? Because my being in chains for Christ has emboldened other believers to begin to share their faith. For them to say, you know what? If Paul's willing to endure this, I'm willing to endure this. And then he says, he acknowledges, yes, there's people that are looking to stir up trouble. They're sharing the gospel with not so rosy motives. In fact, they're looking to anger the Roman captors so that ultimately things will go worse for me. And I don't know about you, but if there were people who were actively looking to stir up frustration in order to hurt me, I would feel really upset. I would, feel, I would take it super personally, and I'd be like, what the heck, right? I would use this perhaps as an opportunity to vent a little bit. But that's not Paul's perspective. Paul says in verse 18, what does it matter? What does it matter if they're looking to stir up problems for me? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. The gospel is shared with others who need to know it. It's good news of great joy for everyone. Others need to hear it. So what does it matter how they hear it so long as they hear it? And because of this, I rejoice. I have joy. Now, I will confess, I read that and I go, Paul, dude, are you a masochist or something? Right? It's difficult for that mindset to compute given his circumstances. And yet, this doesn't have, what, what it reveals is that Paul truly has a different set of eyes on his life, a different set of perspectives. We've talked about joy last week. We talked about the fact that this is his most joy-filled letter. Fourteen times he uses the word joy or rejoice in this short little four-chapter letter. And yet it's written out of some really difficult circumstances. And for many of us, I suspect, and maybe I'll just speak for myself, for me, I tend to approach my relationship with God with this mindset that if I have Jesus in my life, my life will be better. Have any of you kind of taken that similar approach? Many, at least maybe that's often at times even as a pastor how we're, we, we share the gospel. If you say yes to Jesus, he will guide you. He will protect you. He will give you your best life now. That's kind of the impression we get. And so we look. It's almost like we are the center of our own stories, and we're looking to add a little bit of Jesus to make it better. Jesus, if I say yes to you, you're going to protect me from my body breaking down. Jesus, if I say yes to you, you're going to make my investments pay off. Jesus, if I say yes to you, my kids will listen every once in a while. I'll just take a little bit. Jesus, if I yes, say yes to you, my marriage will flourish. If I say yes to you, I'll get that promotion. 
right? There's expectations that we bring to our relationship with God. We turn him into a cosmic vending machine. Jesus, my will be done right now because I don't want to wait for it. And that is the antithesis of the posture that Paul takes with Jesus. Because whereas we look to Jesus as the bit player, the supporting cast member, and we are the center of our own stories, Paul inverts that. He recognizes that Jesus is the center of the story from beginning to end, that history is his story, and all of this is pointing to him, and all of this is about him, for him, and through him, and to him, is everything. And in that, if Jesus is the central uh, focus, then Paul becomes a supporting cast member. He becomes a servant. It's not, what can Jesus do for me? It's, Jesus, what can I do for you? That's his mindset. And in every way, Paul sees himself as a servant of Jesus, not Jesus as a servant of him. In fact, as we we noticed last week, but it bears reminding Paul begins this entire conversation, the entire letter in the very first verse by calling himself a servant. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. That's how he identifies himself. And as we talked about last week, that word servant is a really watered down understanding of that word. The Greek word is doulos. That's what Paul calls himself. We are douloses of Jesus Christ. And the word doulos... We call it a servant. We translate it as servant. It's a really innocuous word, but how Paul's readers would have understood it is a slave. And again, I get why the translators choose the word servant. Slave carries with it tons of baggage, particularly because in our cultural context, slavery is just about always one person being placed under the will of another against their own will, being forced into something. And it is abusive and damaging, and there is so much, so much horrible stuff in our history about that that I understand why they would choose the word servant. However, in Paul's day, we need to remember that a third of his audience, a third of the people living in, Roman king, in the Roman kingdom were slaves. And not everybody who found themselves being a slave had been forced into it against their will. Some of them had actually allowed themselves to be sold into slavery, had chosen it. And here's the reason why. In that day and age, you couldn't declare bankruptcy if you found yourself in a financial strait. In that day and age, if you could not feed your family, if you could not put a roof over your head, if you found yourself with such an immense amount of expenses, you had the recourse to sell yourself to another person to serve them as their doulos, as their slave. And in Scripture, there are actually parameters that God lays down to help protect people who are enslaved. Let's go ahead and throw from Exodus chapter 21 up here. Exodus chapter 21. If you buy a Jewish slave, this is the Mosaic law here. If you buy a Jewish slave, he is to serve you for six years. But at the seventh, he shall go free without paying anything. Now let's pause there for a second. We might look at this as the Bible 
approving of slavery, but what this is, is a protection for those who found themselves in financial straits, who could not provide for themselves or their family, and there is provision made for them that for six years, you'll work off your debt, but on the seventh year, you are to be set free. This is to protect them. However, there was provision made in that same Mosaic law for those who actually wanted to remain under the care, protection, and servitude of that master. Can we continue on here? It goes on. But if the slave declares, I love my master and I don't want to be free, then the master must bring them before the judges, before kind of the representative of God in that community, and explain the situation. Then he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master will pierce his ear with an awl. Just put a hole in his ear. And then he will become his slave, his doulos, for life. Now, we, under, we, we call somebody who has undergone this a bond servant or a bond slave. And many of your you know, Bible translations will actually use the term bond servant or bond slave. But the word doulos is simply slave. That's how the... And Paul is, by the way, in every way a bond slave to Jesus. In no way has Paul chosen, or, you know, been forced into serving Christ against his will. In fact, there are times in some of his letters where he addresses slavery, and he says, hey, listen, if you can find a way to get out of that circumstance, by all means do so. But those of you who find yourselves enslaved to somebody, serve them as if you were serving God. Represent Christ within the midst of this. And we have to ask the question, why would anybody choose willingly if they could be set free? To choose willingly to be a slave for life, why would anybody even choose that option? Well, it might be because they recognize that they, can, they don't have the capacity to provide for themselves in the way that the master can provide. Or perhaps they've identified that the master's purpose and plans is so much greater than what they would have ever been able to bring to life that they want to be a part of that for life. Or perhaps they just say, you know, my master is a good, caring person. I want to be under their care for my life. And that is in all ways the way that Paul is approaching Jesus. He is not looking to get out of his circumstances. He's not just biding his time. i got to put in three more years of this and then I can be free. Paul totally recognized that we are all slaves to something. Maybe we're a slave to our flesh and our yearnings, slave to an addiction. For Paul, he recognized that far too much of his life he had spent being a slave to the law of Moses. He was raised to become a Pharisee. He had trained his whole life. He'd memorized the entire Old Testament, which to them were the scriptures, memorized it by the time he was probably 12 or 14. He had trained under one of the greatest, most well-known Pharisees of his day. He was zealous to the point where he was the one who was giving approval to the stoning of the first Christian martyr because he thought he was serving God in that. He thought he was stamping out an errant theological, you know, bent on Scripture. He thought he was trying to stamp out the gospel because it was false until he realized that Jesus was truly the Messiah, God's anointed Redeemer. 
And for most of Paul's life, he spent trying to climb a broken stairway to heaven. And he came to the point where he realized, this could not possibly get me where I want to go. The righteousness, the right standing with God that I long for, the law can't get me there. All the law does is expose my own inabilities to live a perfect, righteous life. And so Paul will say later on in the book of Philippians, and you don't need to turn here, but in Philippians chapter 3, he says this, Christ has shown me that what I once thought was valuable is worthless. Now, keep in mind that he had just gone through a list of his accomplishments. All these things that I would have put on my resume to say, this is why I'm a successful Christ follower. All of those things that I thought were valuable, they're worthless. Nothing, nothing is as wonderful as knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I've given up everything else and count it all as garbage. All I want is Christ and to know that I belong to him. I couldn't make myself acceptable to God by obeying the law of Moses. Trust me, I tried. But God accepted me simply because of my faith in Christ. We're all slaves to something. For far too long, Paul has served the Mosaic law. He has climbed that broken stairway to heaven. And when he met Jesus, he recognized that it had no ability to, to, to give him the relationship with God that he wanted, but through faith in Jesus, he could already have it. He didn't need to work for it. He could just accept the gift for what it was. An unearned gift. And so he takes hold of it with both hands. And that's why, even though his circumstances aren't all that great, even though he finds himself enslaved, even though he knows that he could potentially be executed at the end of this whole thing, even though there are people who are actively working to stir up trouble for him, he doesn't care because he is a doulos, a bond slave of his master, and his whole focus is not what can my master do for me, but what can I do for him? And when Paul sees that the gospel is being shared, that's great. I find joy. I rejoice in that. And he continues in verse 18. What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. And I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Christ Jesus... What has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and I hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So if I'm going to go on living in this body, that will mean fruitful labor for me. What should I choose? I don't know. I mean, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but I recognize it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy for the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Now, what, what Paul is doing here after he's kind of 
turned his eyes to his momentary circumstances where he's in bondage, he's waiting for his trial, he's got people who are both sharing the gospel with good motives as well as bad ones. He now shifts his focus to what is coming, to his trial and the potential outcome of it. He might be found not guilty and released. He might be found guilty and executed. And on the one hand, Paul doesn't have a clue how it's going to turn out, right? He, he has no control over that. He could be executed. He could, he could be exonerated. And yet, there's another part of him that has absolute confidence in what is going to happen. Regardless of what happens to me, whether by life or by death, God will use this for my deliverance. And the word deliverance there is actually the same word that throughout most of the New Testament, but most of Paul's letters, is translated salvation. So whether in life or death, I will be saved. I am going to do the will of the Father. I am going to advance the gospel purposes. I'm going to unapologetically share my faith because I've been given the opportunity to do so. And then regardless of what happens, God gets the glory. Because to live is Christ, he says, and to die is gain. Now, that's a, a poetic verse that many of us know we've memorized. We throw it around. But I don't know if we ever stop to think about what does he mean by that? What does it mean to live as Christ and to die as gain? So let's lean in for just a second on it. I think the second part of that is actually the easier for us to grasp, right? Because what is Paul about? He is about his master's business. The invitation from Jesus was, follow me. And so Paul has said, yes, I will follow you. I'm going to allow my life to be shaped by you. I am with you. But Paul recognizes he's living in a broken world. And his life has not been easy. There's been a lot of pain in it. I think some of us might be able to identify, although I think that the level we can identify with his suffering is minuscule. He has suffered greatly. And to die, if I, if, I, if I die, that means I get to be with Jesus. That's a gain. That makes sense, right? I get to spend eternity with him because Paul recognizes the brokenness of this world doesn't get the last word. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, he has a hope that his relationship with God will transcend the breaking down of his mortal body. To, to die will be gain because I'll get to spend eternity with him. But to live, to live is Christ. Now, what does he mean by that? I think what it's showing is that Paul so closely identifies with Jesus that everything he does is a reflection of Jesus. In fact, in Galatians chapter 2, can we throw that up there? In Galatians chapter 2, Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. For Paul, the mindset is, I am now a reflection of Jesus. I have so closely aligned myself with his purpose and his values that everything I do, I want to do for him. When I wake up in the morning, I'm not asking, what do I want to do with my time today? When I wake up in the morning, I'm saying, good morning, Jesus. What do you want me to do today? When I, when I sell a tent and I have money come in or if somebody gives me money, I don't say, what do I want to do with my money? All of it is his. My time, my talents, my treasures, it's all his. Jesus, what would you have me do with this? 
<laughs> I think it's funny how when it comes to our money, that's a, a sore subject, right? A lot of times we approach it as we get our paycheck and we go, Jesus, how much of my money do you want, right? Like, and the mindset that Paul would bring is, it's all yours. How much of your money do you want me to keep? How would you want me to invest this? What would you want me to do with this? It's a totally different mindset. One I think a lot of us are very far from in our perspective, including myself. I am not standing up here as somebody who's got this figured out. Intellectually, I know it. When, it come, when the rubber meets the road, I still grapple with my flesh because although I've been crucified with Christ, my flesh is so stinking resilient. Oh, thank goodness for grace, right? It's funny as I'm trying to raise my kids how much of a kid I still realize I am. Anyway, that's another conversation for another day. And you all know it anyway already, for those of you who have ever met me. Just how childish I really am. Let's keep going. For Paul, being able to serve Jesus is everything. And to be able to do his will, just to, whatever time he has, is an act of getting to represent Jesus, to be a reflection. You know how we call ourselves Christian Right? That's a term we throw around without really ever thinking about it. In, in the city of Colossae, it was the first time that that word Christian was used, and it was actually used mockingly. Oh, those Christians, those little Christs, because that's what they want to be. And the believers in that city were like, well, yeah, that is what we want to be. We want to be little Christ. So they took what was intended as a negative epithet, and they began to use it as the title, yes. We want to be Christ, little Christs in the same way that Paul says, yes, I want to be a doulos, a slave. Because we don't live for ourselves. We live for him, and we live to be a reflection of him into the sphere of influence that God has planted each of us. You know, as I think about Paul and his approach to live is Christ and to die is gain, I can't help but think about my buddy Tony Pekka. Stinking Tony. I love this man. About a year and a half ago, he had a, a, a pretty massive heart attack. Uh, and I went down to Hogue Hospital to visit him and fully anticipated that when I walked in there, it would feel, you know, the energy in a ho hospital room is not typically energetic, unless it's Tony's hospital room. Because I walk in there and the energy in that place is just, Tony has this massive smile that radically seemed out of place in that hospital room. I go, hey, Tony, how you doing? Probably was more like that. Hey, Tony, how you doing? Oh, Eric, I'm so good. And it's like, seriously? Right? And on the surface, I'm like, great. And on the inside, I'm going, what did they give you? Right? And I go, so, so what's going on? And at this point, I want you to understand, Tony didn't know if he'd ever walk out of the, ho the hospital at that point. He still had a couple of bypass surgeries to go. Right? So it is a question of whether or not he will ever leave this hospital room and the smile on his face and the joy that his entire countenance exuded was palpable in that room. And he started sharing with me how he'd been able to talk with, you know, get to share his faith with his nurses. They're his captive audience, right? Because they have to come and care for him. So he gets to talk to them and bless them. And he starts talking about, oh, Pastor. I just think about how amazing it's going to be when I get to go be with Jesus. I can't wait. There's a part of me that really hopes I get to go be with him. And I'm thinking, what? I can't. I hope I get to see him. But at the same time, 
I know that my wife Karen would really be upset if she heard me say that, right? Because I know she still needs me. And I've got all these other people that I want to be able to continue to serve. This man is a servant. He if you know Tony, you know the man lives his life to care for and serve others. Retired firefighter who just loves to go in and care for people who are in need in our community. He says, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to go be with Jesus. And it, just, it was just like I was, taught, I was listening to Paul speak. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, I think about Tony's example for me because it is a modern-day example of Paul's posture. And if you, want to, if you were to ask me, why is it important to follow Jesus? Why would it be beneficial to give your hearts to Jesus? Why on earth would anybody want to be a slave to God? Tony's a great example of why. Because in Christ... Tony has found his purpose to serve others and reflect the heart of Jesus. And in Christ, Tony has absolutely no fear of death. You want to talk about freedom, Tony's living it. He knows what he's about, and he's not afraid of what might happen. And he is free because he has chosen to be a slave, a bond slave to Jesus. And I can't help but ask myself, well, what about me? Is that true of me? And I'll extend the same question to you. When the rubber meets the road and you're alone in your home, when you wake up in the morning and, and as you're laying there in the still quiet of your room, what would you honestly say you're living for? Are you living for the kingdom of God? Or are you living for your own little fiefdom that you're trying to eke out and protect? Are you living to make his name great? Or are you living with the hopes that you can make your own name great? I'm not throwing rocks here. If anything, I'm, I'm, I'm pointing this right at myself and asking myself the same questions. What are you living for? Perhaps a different way of, of, of articulating this is who are you living for? Because if you're living for yourself, if you're living for your own comfort, then I would imagine that this current season of life has been really, really difficult because there has been nothing comfortable about the last six months. If we are living for ourselves, and if we have the mindset that Jesus is here to give me my best life now, then he is failing us, and our faith is obviously futile because he can't protect us from a little virus or from smoke or, or, or from our, our favorite restaurant or, or, you know, gym being closed. But if we're living for him, if we are bond slaves to Christ, then our circumstances are secondary. Jesus warned us when he warned his disciples on the night that he was about to be arrested and then crucified the next day. Listen, guys, in this world, you will have trouble. Yep, we're all experiencing it. But you can take heart in the fact that I've overcome the world, right? The brokenness of this world won't get the last word. Just keep your eyes fixed on me and continue to do what I have called you to do. To live is Christ. If you die, it's gravy.
my prayer is that we would not be the kind of people who are living for our own comfort because that is a, that is a, a hamster wheel that will never, ever, ever take us anywhere. Pray that we will not live for just trying to be better Christians and, and, and just trying to climb that broken stairway to heaven like Paul was. It won't take us anywhere. It won't ever result in the righteousness we need. May we be the kind of people who recognize I am no longer my own. I was bought at a price. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I can say that with my lips, but unless the Holy Spirit is working out that in my heart, it will never produce the kind of fruit that I want in my own life or in your life. And so I just want to pray for all of us, because I suspect that for all of us, there's a part of us that feels a little bit guilty, like, dang, I'm not like Paul. I'm not even like Tony. Right? So let me just pray for us. Father God, thank you for loving us so much that you don't just leave us in our sin. You don't expect us to climb a broken stairway to heaven. You haven't just given us over to the destructive hungers of our flesh. I just said, good luck. No. Thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your son Jesus to die in our place so that we can live reconciled, restored back into relationship with you. And thank you for the example of Paul, the example of Tony. We want to live for something greater. We want to live as your ambassadors, as little Christs. We want to live free from the fear of death. Because to live, we get to, be with you. we get to serve you and to die, we get to be with you. So would you help us, Holy Spirit, would you continue that long, lifelong process of cleaning us out and identifying our own pseudo-saviors that we run to? God, we want to give you our hearts completely, every last bit of it, the good, the bad, and the downright ugly. Help yourself to our lives, Jesus. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Before we, we go into worship, I want to share two opportunities with you. We, uh, as I've said, these current circumstances are super uncomfortable. I don't love it. I hate the fact that for most, almost six months we've been kind of separated and had to just do this. I hate the fact that only about half of us are here this morning and the other half are watching from on home. I'm so glad we can but I miss seeing your faces too. And so I'm talking to all of us. These last six months have been uncomfortable. I know that many of us would like to see 2020 in our rearview mirror. But they've also given some amazing opportunities for us to be the church, beyond the walls of the church. And there's two opportunities I want to, to highlight this morning. I want to invite you to join us in. The first one is... One that I shared a, an email two days ago. And for those of you who don't get my emails, please just email pastor at lighthousecommunity.com and we'll make sure you start receiving them. But in that, I explained that there is currently a 10-day of prayer gathering going on. And earlier in this thing, we, we did one for the churches in Costa Mesa. 
right? We had something like 22 churches in Costa Mesa spend three weeks leading up to Easter, praying 24-7, using Zoom gatherings and stuff. And then the next month, we did it with the Orange County, and we had like 500 churches that were participating. Well, now, now this is, is international, right? Throw it back up there for one more second. Now there's, this is going on all over the country, but also all around the world. Ten days of prayer, and it coincides with the time between Rosh Hashanah, the new year for the Jews, and, and, and the Feast of Tabernacles. There is this ten days that they call the ten days of awe. And it is a time of kind of looking at ourselves and, and, and humbling ourselves, oftentimes fasting from things that are a distraction or things that we find our solace in and saying, instead, I'm going to spend these 10 days focused on you and praying to you, God. And we've kind of jumped on board with that. And we're joining with Christ followers from all around the world to pray. And so for the next 10 days, if you want to know more about it, you can go to 10days, the number 10days.net. And then here in the state of California, we have a specific kind of, you just go backslash California. And there are going to be 24, there's a 24-7 prayer room for the next, it's the second day of it. So for the next nine days, there's a 24-7 prayer room that you can join in. You can sign up for an hour slot to pray as many times as you want. You don't have to only do one. There's a daily prayer guide to give you some direction to pray, a different one each day. I just want to invite you to join us in that. Join with believers from all over, because there's really only one church. Jesus is the head of all of us, and we get to be a part of that, that much larger community as we raise our homes, as we raise our neighborhoods, as we raise our country and our world up to God. Boy, do we need it. Secondly, the second way you can participate in what God is doing corporately is on October 3rd, we're going to do Love Costa Mesa Serve Day. And this is something that we've been doing for the last several years, where the church in Costa Mesa gathers together with our, our civic leaders and with businesses and say, how can we just love our city? You probably see signs like this all over the city. Well, here's how you can help us. All of us have a sphere of influence. All of us have people that God has placed into our kind of orbit. And so many of you know needs of people around us. I want to invite you to begin to prayerfully say, is there anybody in, our, in my sphere of influence that needs help? Are there one of my neighbors whose home is just run down and really needs some help? I know that one of the, one of the people in Costa Mesa identified somebody who was a hoarder, and the, over the last couple of years, we've been slowly helping them get their home clean. Now, I understand that this year, this is going to have to be morphed just slightly because of COVID. There will be opportunities for those of you who don't feel comfortable being around other people, uh, there will be opportunities both to write letters of thanks to people. There will be opportunities to do part of Zoom gathering service opportunities. And then there will be in-person opportunities where we just, in a COVID-friendly way, we begin to serve our city. And if you identify a need, all you need to do is go to lovecostamesa.org and you can let them know about that opportunity and then we as the church in Costa Mesa are going to begin to serve. Lighthouse will be one of the outposts. We'll have people coming through here and getting the kind of their marching orders. If you want to participate, again, you can just go ahead and go to, light, or to uh, lovecostamesa.org. That's going to be about two weeks from now. Um, but why, I, my excitement is that God is using this very uncomfortable season a time when none of us would choose it, and I would not choose to go back through it for anything, but he's been using this season to really till the soil of our society, 
It's a, it's a soil that has grown hardened to the seeds of hope because we're comfortable. We've grown addicted to our comfort, addicted to our feeling that we are in control. And all of that has been stripped away in this season. And as much as we don't like it because we are addicted to our comfort and we are addicted to our control, he's using it to advance his kingdom and he's allowing us to participate. And I just wanted to invite you to join us. So now let's worship our Savior who gave it all so that we could live for him. Let's worship him together. Given you my heart and all that is within it all down for the state of you my king given you my dreams laying down my rights given up my pride for the promise of new life and I surrender Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. And I, I surrender.
Thank you all for being here with us. We're so glad and blessed that you're here. If you want to stand together, we can stand together. We just want to sing a song that's going to go ahead. You guys go ahead and kick it. But I just, there are times when I just got to claim, blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen? There's just times when it's just time to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. No matter what the garbage is going on the TV. I'm sorry, did I say garbage? All the stuff going on the TV. That's all right. It's, yeah, and, and it's okay. God is still in control, amen? We don't want to forget that. Lord, 
Blessed be your name, Jesus. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. It's interesting, uh, um, the first time I ever heard that song was at a memorial service for my high school youth pastor, 41 years old, younger than me. We never know how long we have. It's not like we can just kind of expect a certain amount of years. And I remember those words having a palpable effect on me. Blessed be your name when, you know... (laughs) The sun is shining down on me and the world is all it should be. And blessed be your name as I walk along a broken road that's marked with misery. And I totally, you know, massacred it, but whatever. You get the idea. Like, regardless of what kind of season we walk through, may my life have its focus on you so that regardless of whether the path I walk is solid or broken, Regardless of whether my body is working just as it was designed or it's breaking down, I will glorify you. That is what we were created to do, to bring glory to him and to join him in the work of cultivating his creation. And that includes the relationships with those who don't know him. We get to be a reflection of him. So Lighthouse Community Church, I love you. And whether you're here and I'm so glad to see you or whether you're at home and I look forward to seeing you, go be the church. Have a great week.